Again, we need to invite the presence of our God into our midst, so let us kneel as we do that. Father in heaven, it is a great comfort to us that we can come to thee in prayer, that thou hast opened thy throne room to our petitions, and that thou dost hear. Thou hast promised that the Holy Spirit will come into our midst, and that he will lead us into all truth. O Lord, may this be so for Christ's sake. Amen. It is quite wonderful to hear the reports of the lay people who are doing their part. You know, this is a new era, at least in my lifetime. An era of laymen, not motivated by the pastor or the organization, but the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals and placing a burden for souls in their hearts. And I see it wherever I go. I just appreciated the report of Sister Bennett and Jonathan here. What a privilege it is to have this work going on in this country. It's not a work to make money. It's a work that only has one object, and that is souls for the kingdom of God. I was also pleased to hear that Jason is going to become a street preacher. I'm not a very experienced street preacher. I've done a little of it, but uh, you know that has accomplished so much in the past. And literature that we have just been listening to has such an effect. It was literature that I can thank God that my grandmother became a Seventh-day Adventist, the one that met Sister White. And it was a young man too, just like Jonathan. Because my dear old grandmother was a very faithful Methodist. She was born in this country of Scottish parents. With a name like Craig, she could hardly uh, be anything but uh, a Scot. But she was born near Newcastle on Tyne. And her parents must have liked the name Newcastle because they migrated to Newcastle in Australia. And that's where I was born. <clears throat> but my grandmother 
became a Seventh-day Adventist through a very timid young man. He was only 17 years old, placing a tract on the Sabbath under her door. So I have a lot to thank the literature work for. And I wonder, when we leave the meetings, whether we remember the work that is being done. I mean in a practical way. Yes, in prayer. But you don't produce all that paper for nothing. You don't post it out for nothing. We have, in our ministry, a very strong literature feature, sending mainly to third world countries, especially to India and Africa and the South Pacific nations and some other parts of Asia. I know what it costs. It's very expensive in postage and uh, the materials cost money. And God has given us means. You know, I said uh, when uh, Brother Anderson was speaking this morning about the work of our pastor from uh, Ukraine. All of us need to consider the bank of heaven a lot more than we are. We all need to. Uh, it's so easy for us to, to forget the bank of heaven. Oh yes, we're faithful tithe payers, but the test of our fidelity to God isn't in paying tithe. If we don't pay tithe or we don't pay a faithful tithe, that's a sign of our abject disobedience of the command of God, our unfaithful stewardship of the means he has given us. But the real test of our love for God is in our offerings. Wherein have ye robbed me in tithes and in offerings? Very, very few people, I suspect, who come to these meetings rob God in tithe. There may even be some, I don't know. I've never met any, or known of any, that come to these meetings. But I wonder if we're all faithful in offerings. I know when I look at uh, denominational statistics, the offerings are going down, down, down in relation to the tithe. In other words, we're giving small... The more affluent we have become, the smaller the percentage of that means are we giving freely to God. If you go back to the 1930s, the percentage of offerings as compared with tithe was relatively high. When people were in the Depression. I remember when I was a boy, the way... My parents used to start from the first Sabbath putting away money for the 13th Sabbath offering. And then they'd have investment projects. You know, when my mother died in, quite suddenly in 1974, one of the saddest things for me was to go to a drawer in her dressing table with my father. She died so suddenly from a heart attack. And she was younger than I am now. She was 61. And uh, she was a wonderful, faithful Seventh-day Adventist. And we opened that drawer. Our hearts still 
shocked with her death because all I was there about 600 kilometres away. I was in Sydney and they were in Melbourne. And at four o'clock in the morning, I got this message from my sister who'd been rung by my father that mum had had a very serious heart attack. I said, Del, let's catch... She was in Sydney too. Let's catch the first plane down. It was seven o'clock in the morning and let's go to mum's bedside because we loved her so much. My sister was very much younger. I was 40 at the time and she was 25. And uh, together we went down. And I can still remember ringing the hospital from the airport and asking, was my father still there, that I could talk with him? But they said he'd left. And we didn't know what that meant. Uh, My sister turned to me and she said, Russ, why has he left? She was afraid. Well, you know, even when you're a physician yourself, hope springs eternal. And I knew my brother lived in a... A younger brother lived in a distant part of the city, had no telephone. I said, I think maybe Dad's gone to tell him that Mum's sick, left the hospital. Or, Or maybe he had to go and find some breakfast. I don't know. But, of course, it was neither of those were the reason, sad to say. We took the bus to the terminal, the airport bus, and just as we arrived there, my young brother drove up. He was only 22. I didn't have to ask him what he was going to say. I knew what he was going to tell me. I had gone there with such hope that I could put my arms around my mother again and tell her I loved her, even if it was for one last time. For it was, I had not seen her for not a long time, seven weeks, but she was so vivacious, so alive, you could not believe that she was going to be taken so quickly. And my poor young brother just said two words, Mum died. Mum died. And we, he took us out to the home. Poor Dad was just so shocked. A wife one day, a widower the next day. And he was walking up the front lawn of the house, back and forth. He didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't know how to assuage his grief. I'm sure he was praying for he was a godly man. And we couldn't even talk to one another. Uh, The emotion was so great. Because she had been so loving and she'd been such a mother. You know, I told you that Colin and I write letters. We didn't get that from our dad. We got that from our mum. She was one of the best letter writers. And I walked into this house, just a little humble home, and I walked into the kitchen. And there was a letter addressed, Dr. R. R. Standish, to me. Was it even sealed? There was a pen lying there, and there were Mum's glasses 
but she'd had on before she went to bed that night. She had written this letter. You know, it took me some hours before I had the emotional ability to read her last letter. She didn't know she was going to be dead in a few hours. She wasn't feeling well. And she expressed that. She said, I think on Monday I'll have to go to the doctor. I've been having chest pain. She didn't realise how serious that chest pain was. And as I say, we walked into Mum's Mum and Dad's bedroom and we opened her dressing table drawer and there was an envelope, just an ordinary letter envelope, nothing special, but it had written on it 13th Sabbath, that's all it had written on it. And already, now she died on May 5, now you know that's just about one month after the start of a quarter, there was still two more months of that quarter left. But there was a considerable amount of money that week by week mum was putting away so that she would give a bountiful offering on that 13th Sabbath, which she was never to see. It was an emotional moment because I knew that had been a lifelong sacrifice of my mother even when salaries were were so low we could hardly make ends meet during the depression and uh, I took that money and I of course trebled it to make up for the two months she couldn't that was her last offering to God and I put it in the appropriate 13th Sabbath offering. But that's the sort of sacrifice, brothers and sisters, that made this church what it is. But today I find that we may be very faithful in helping with the work of God with our tithes, but very few have the dedication I saw in my mum and dad in the matter of offerings, we think, well, look at all this tithe I'm giving. That's because we're getting, in relative terms, big salaries these days, compared with the miserable $3 my father got every week when I was born. Uh, very little. But uh, then, now, where would the equivalent of a bit over a pound go a week. You wouldn't live too well these days. You remember when a 10-shilling note really meant something. Now you get a miserable 50p coin and it's not worth anything. Of course, if you put a few of them together, it helps. But brothers and sisters, I can still remember the first time I came back after Britain went decimal. And I went just one section on a bus and they said 50p. I thought, 10 shillings? <laughs> just to go. It seemed that all of a sudden what was a lot of money became just a bit of, you know, almost negligible. 
We don't think today the way we used to think of 10 shillings. It meant so much to us. But my brothers and sisters, you might say, well, I don't have the time or I'm uh, old or I've got some other reason. Do we ever think to send any means? I'm talking about offerings to help some of these ministries that we've just heard, to help the literature go out. 5% of Britain's a mighty, mighty lot of people, but it's still only 5%. And the message has got to go not to 5% of Britain's, not to 50% or 95%. It's got to go to 100%. And the literature work is going to be very effective uh, in taking that message. And again I say I am impressed with what I am seeing. This is a worldwide phenomenon, what you are hearing about. There are many ministries in Australia who are sending all over. The whole of Victoria has been covered um, by one ministry with offers of Bible studies. You know, about the number of Bible studies they get per invitation per household is about one for every thousand they send out of invitations. They've sent out about one and a half million invitations to households and they have 1,400 Bible studies. But isn't that wonderful? 1,400. In old secular Australia, people who wanted the truth of God. When I advertised about the Sunday law last year in the Bendigo newspaper. They were wanting a Sunday law and I put two advertisements in the paper warning those citizens and telling them the dangers of enforcing Sunday laws. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper explaining from the Bible and from leading Protestant sources that Sunday was not the Sabbath in any case. And that editor was good enough to place the letter in the newspaper and he gave it the title that thrilled me. He called it Learning the True Sabbath. That was a pretty good title. Yes, Learning the True Sabbath. And they did learn the True Sabbath. But he had done, the editor had done a, a poll, an opinion poll in that City, it was just a city of about 80,000 people. And he had found that it was about 50-50 whether it was going to pass or not, this Sunday law referendum for that city to close all the shops and businesses on Sunday. You know, you might say, well, that's not really the Sunday law. The devil's going to bring the Sunday law in one step at a time. And that is the bottom step. Make no mistake. Sunday laws are always religious. No other reason why it should specify that day of the week. And uh, in the advertisements I said, anyone who would like a free book which traces the history of religious liberty over the past 2,000 years can send their name and address or ring the telephone or fax That book, of course, was great controversy. It is a wonderful history concerning religious liberty in the last two thirds. 
630-something people from that city wrote and asked voluntarily for a copy of that book. What an opportunity it was in these last days, my brothers and sisters, an opportunity to bring the matter of the Sabbath before these people. You see, there was an issue at stake. It was all the rage in the local newspapers. Pros and cons. Oh, Adventists must seize the occasion. We put out in every home a newspaper, something like Earth's Final Warning, but we called it the Sunday Law Times. And that went to every home. And it was so good when that referendum was held. As I mentioned to some, barely 22, less, just less, slightly less than 22% voted in favour. And 78% voted against. Now, of course, Bendigo's going to get a Sunday law. We all know that one day from some source. Maybe the federal government, we don't know exactly but all the world's going to get their Sunday law. But brothers and sisters, let us seize every opportunity. People are much more likely to read about the Sabbath when it's an issue than they are when it's not an issue. Not that we shouldn't still distribute the literature, but let us never resile from our our God-given opportunities. And I pray that if you've been impressed by any of these ministries that you have heard, what is to stop us putting aside some money and once in a month saying, I'm going to do my part to support this. And we can't perhaps any one of us pay for the whole thing, but we can do our little bit and pay for it. And, uh, and bank that money in the bank of heaven. You won't find the pounds devaluing in the bank of heaven. No devaluation there. I guarantee that. That's one thing. I don't know much about money, but I know about the bank of heaven. It will never be devalued. And the interest is, we can't calculate the interest that you will receive. Uh, You can't even calculate it. Do we really believe in the bank of heaven? Or are we more concerned concerned uh, uh, with uh, Barclays Bank or Lloyd's or one of these banks? Are they more of interest to us? Or is it the bank of heaven? Brothers and sisters, the European situation in the last days is important. It is important because the papacy is situated on this continent of which you are a part. You may be an island off the main continental um, area, but you are still Europeans. And this is the continent upon which the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the one who will enforce the Sunday laws using the mighty power of the United States and the United States allies in order to enforce it. Sister White tells us that the Sunday laws will be enforced in the old world, and this is the old world.
by Roman Catholicism and in the new world by apostate Protestantism. I the death decree is no less severe if it comes from apostate Protestants than it is from Roman Catholics. We are in that time when this is about to come. And in Revelation 13, as we read before, there is going to be this new power, the United States, that's going to bolster the power and the might of the papacy. And when we speak of the papacy, we've got to think of its influence, both political and religious. It is not a religious organisation. It's a religio-political organisation. And to be honest, it's vastly more political than it is religious. Because its religion is a sham. It is not a Christian power, it is an anti-Christian power. That's why it is called the Antichrist. It is a power which has all the trimmings, all the trimmings of Christianity, but none of the genuineness of the love of Christ. It is a power that is full of wonderful ceremony, very colourful, very appealing to the eye. Its cathedrals are magnificent structures. We barely had time to do anything but to serve the Lord in, in Lisbon just a few days ago. But... Well, I only left there yesterday, didn't I? But we were waiting for the British embassy to open. It didn't open till three, so we had an hour or so. And uh, our brother that was showing us around a wonderful... I wish you could meet these people in Portugal. Uh, what a wonderful brother he was. He said, let me take you down by the, the great river to the spot where the, the great... Uh, navigators left Portugal, you know, in the 16th, Vasco da Gama in the 15th century to find the route to India. And uh, for us in Australia, we think of Torres, that man who was searching for the great Southland, Terra Australis. That's where the name Australia comes from, from the Latin word for south. And... Uh, you know that everyone assumed that there was a mass of land down the south. It came from the old days of ignorance when they thought the earth had to be balanced. There was a lot of, of um, land in the north, so there had to be equal amount of land like a seesaw to keep it from going in one direction. That's how it first came to be understood. And you see the old maps with this big blob of land, terra Australis, the South Land. And Torres, that Portuguese navigator, decided he was going to find it. Many of the Spanish navigators sought it. You know, they found the littlest islands in the Pacific, but they couldn't find Australia. And Torres sailed at a latitude that took him between 
the Cape York Peninsula, which is about 80 miles south of New Guinea and the New Guinea coast. He just chose that latitude and he never saw Australia. Never saw it. He left that very point. Oh, he saw the coast of New Guinea, but he never found the Southland. It seemed as if God was keeping it for the British. He must have been keeping it for the British because it was just amazing how they kept missing. They even found the New Hebrides. That's why they called the big island there Espiritu Santos, the Holy Spirit. I only wish the Holy Spirit was there today. But, you know, he took us into this cathedral that was there. Magnificent. There was a funeral being conducted. But we looked at it, towering. And the tremendous supports that were there, the pillars, beautifully carved. It would cost hundreds of millions to build in the beautiful stonework of centuries ago. You have the same in this country, in the various cathedrals. Even this little church here at Gaisley, when I took Glenys there yesterday afternoon, she was intrigued. It's so old and... Uh, you know, we don't have buildings that old in Australia. And, uh, but my dear brothers and sisters, all these trimmings, the papacy is the power that is to be used more than any power on earth. No pagan power could ever be used as effectively as the papacy. And that power has to have support. If all the Vatican had was its little 40 hectares of land and its 1,000 or so population, what could it do? Nothing. And yet here we're told it's going to be this mighty superpower at the end of time. Well, we've already seen how it works with America to be that superpower. We're going to see more tomorrow when we talk about what's been happening more recently in Kosovo and uh, in Serbia. But the reason that the papacy has its power is its stranglehold upon Europe. That is the reason. Oh, it looked as if it was losing that stranglehold after 1798. But of course... The Bible is correct. That deadly wound of Revelation 13.3 has been so effectively healed that even if you had a microscope, you can't scar anymore. Is that right? It is the most powerful nation in the world. Why is it so powerful? You know, it was foolish of President Reagan to get into this alliance with the papacy, the Holy Alliance. I've got the Time magazine of the 24th day of February 1992, uh, just over here in the room. 
the headlines, the cover story, Holy Alliance. I never forget the day I saw that. I was still in denominational work. And uh, I, was, I had been to Sabah, used to be British North Borneo, on, the, uh, on Borneo. I tell you, it's no backward part of the world. Beautiful is Kota Kinabalu, the capital city of that state. And uh, I was catching the flight back from Kota Kinabalu, the capital city, to Singapore after presenting Spirit of Prophecy messages because one of my duties in the Southeast Asian Union, I was the director of Spirit of Prophecy services. Rest assured, my brothers and sisters, I love that position. They couldn't have given it to a man who valued it more to go and to increase our people's uh, interest and uh, appreciation of the spirit of prophecy. And I went to the airport there in this, well, to many people, outpost of the world. And I saw at the newsstand, Time magazine, Holy Alliance. I didn't know what it was about. But I knew that I had to find the Malaysian dollars to buy it. I had to do something in the two hours that I was travelling back to Singapore. And then I read the way in which the United States had uh, cooperated with the papacy to destabilise communism in Europe. Now, of course, I'm not here to say it, uh, it was a bad thing that communism was destabilised. Please don't misunderstand me. But what they had done, or more or less done, was to try and make every citizen of Poland a traitor to his own country by feeding intelligence information. You see, what a system of intelligence. The CIA, the former KGB, these organisers, they're rank amateurs compared with the Roman Catholic Church when it comes to intelligence-gathering material. You see, they have a system. They have cardinals whose first allegiance is to the Vatican, not to their country. They have archbishops. They have bishops. They have priests. And they have laymen. And make no mistake, they have many Roman Catholics as leaders, political leaders of their nation. What a wonderful system to obtain intelligence information and this article made no bones about stating that that's exactly what had happened with Poland they keep feeding information concerning the weakness of their government and so forth until it was destabilized you know I'll still remember when Gorbachev went to the Vatican when he was the uh, first secretary of the USSR when that country existed. And he went there over Ukraine and he went there over the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. They were, there were troubles in those countries. The reason was, of course, the Pope was very interested, naturally, in the Ukraine because the majority are Roman Catholics, not like the Russians. And I still remember reading the foolishness of Gorbachev in believing the Pope 
the Pope said to him, look, if you will let Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania have their freedom, I believe that we can help you retain the Ukraine, a vastly more populous region, republic, within the Soviet Union. You know, the moment I read that, I couldn't believe that Gorbachev would believe the Pope. Because I knew that the moment it served his purpose, he would do all he could to take that nation of Ukraine away from the Soviet Union. And it didn't take very long to see that the Pope was absolutely ineffectual, whether deliberately or in any other way, to stop the breakup of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. Today we have 15 nations where there was one. That serves the papacy well. In Yugoslavia we have five nations where there was one. In Czechoslovakia we have two nations now where there was one. And now in this country we have taken steps by what has happened with a parliament that was just opened this last week and another one in the West. It serves the papacy very, very well to weaken the sovereign nations of Europe. Make no mistake. That's how the Holy Roman Empire existed for 1,008 years. It, yes, there were massive number of German people, but there was no Germany. There were these little dukedoms and principalities and, and uh, electorships and so forth, little tiny areas, Saxony, Baden, uh, Baden and Württemberg and, and uh, Bavaria and Hanover and all these different little nations, Prussia and so forth. And it was very easy for the Pope with all these little tiny fragmented units to pit one against the other and to keep control of Europe in that way. We go down to Spain and we have the Basques who want their own uh, country. We have that massive city, Barcelona, in the Catalan area. Uh, they are not, most of them, Spanish people. They are a different race. And I believe that the very processes that are going on in Europe, these fragmentation processes, are designed to give more power and strength. And yet, the papacy wants the strength. It wants unity, but it wants a unification with weak nations within the Union, that it can manipulate one against the other. There is no doubt... No doubt at all that the Pope wants the European Union. I'm reading from the Sydney Morning Herald. You know, I am back in Australia sometimes. <laughs> this was eight years ago, November 1991. And this is what it said. He was speaking in St. Peter's Basilica to 137 European bishops and now I quote, he revealed his long-standing dream of a continent united on Christian principles, 
that Christian was his word, by the way, from the Atlantic to the Urals, from the Mediterranean to the North Pole. He wanted the lot. He wanted the lot. United. Now, of course, there are 15 nations united at this point. But you'll notice that the flag has not changed. You've seen the American flag. When I first knew the American flag, there were 48 stars in that corner. But then Alaska became the 49th state. So the flag was changed so that there were 49, seven sevens. But then in 1950, Hawaii, one year later. So they had to change the flag again. And now you see the flag with 50 stars there. But what about the European Union? Yes, up until 1995, there were 12 nations in. So they could say, well, 12, circle of 12 stars. But they've added three since then. But how many stars does it have? Still has 12. Have you gone in to Catholic cathedrals and seen statues of Mary? How many stars around Mary's halo? Exactly the same number. Those symbols of 12 stars has nothing to do with the number of constituent nations of the European Union. That's already proved by the fact that no effort has been made to increase the circle of stars in the last four years when it needed to be increased, if that was its purpose. Every time you see on the European Union flag, and I see it now to me, it is a revulsion to me every time I see that flag. Yes, it is an attractive, it's a beautiful blue, and the stars are a lovely gold, and I like uh, that. It's not a busy flag like many flags are, uh, but what it represents. I know what's behind it. It is Catholicism which is behind the European Union. And you think of the nations that are part of the European Union which are predominantly Roman Catholic. Spain and Portugal. France. Ireland. Luxembourg. Belgium. Italy. Germany is half Roman Catholic. The Netherlands are half Roman Catholic. You see, the dominant nations, take out this one, in the European Union, are Roman Catholic nations. It was commenced, as you know, as the common market. Well, actually, it was commenced before that, uh, before the common market. It was uh, commenced as the Franco-German Steel Agreement. Seemed pretty innocuous, didn't it? bit surprising so soon after they had been such combatants in the war but the Franco German Steel Agreement 1957 but it wasn't long before the common market came Britain was not part of that I remember when I was doing my medical specialty studies in Britain uh, before it joined the common market I couldn't believe how cheap everything was compared to Australia. Don't ask me to make that comparison anymore. We hardly know how to pay 
for the cost of things in Britain compared with what we have to pay back home now. It's incredible the relationship that has been developed and the cost of things since Britain joined that European uh, uh, community as it was, economic community. You know, it kept changing its name, didn't it? It went from this Franco-French agreement and then when the Netherlands and Belgium and Luxembourg and Italy joined those two countries, it became uh, the common market. Then it became the European Economic Community. But then they wanted to de-emphasise that it was only economic, so they just called it the EC, the European Community. And then at last they came out with what they really had in mind, the European Union. But of course there are others who have a different name for it. And, uh, and rightly so. In the London Sunday Telegraph... See, I do read British papers. I like them. <laughs> of um, August 25, 1991. I think he's still the editor, old Perry Green Worsthorn, isn't he? Is he still or is he retired now? Does anyone know? I think with a name like Perry Green Worsthorn, you have to have something going for you. But a very respected editor. And he wrote an article in 1991 eight years ago, and uh, he entitled it with a question. There was a question mark after it. And this is what he called that article. Now a holy European empire? Have we now got, he was saying, a holy European empire? And he was referring, of course, to the European Union. Here is an editor in a country that is a non-Catholic country. But this is what he said. It is the movement towards federalism of the common market that the Pope may see the greatest possibility for an increase in Catholic political power since the fall of Napoleon or since the Counter-Reformation. You know, these men are insightful. He said, with this move towards federalism, to move for political unity, he said, there is going to be the best opportunity for the Pope to increase Catholic political power. He's not saying religious power, since Napoleon, of course, had the Pope arrested, and even, he said, since the Counter-Reformation. The common market itself started under the influence of Catholic politicians. The people in Britain, especially Seventh-day Adventists, should understand that this is a Roman Catholic organisation. And the United Kingdom has foolishly become part of that European Union. Now, I'm not saying this to make a political statement. I'm speaking in spiritual terms. Because Britain, by being a member, I believe, is aiding and abetting the one who is really the puppeteer of the European Union. 
He goes on to say, if European federalism triumphs, the European community will indeed be an empire. It will lack an emperor. But it will have the Pope. He didn't say it will have Queen Elizabeth II. People were hanged, drawn and quartered centuries ago for being so disloyal to their monarch. No. He said it has no emperor, but it has the Pope. Sweden was seeking to go into the European community in 1991 also. It did eventually do so in 1995. And it was given some advice, very important advice. I don't know and I trust it did not take the advice, but that advice was given by a Swedish man called Lars Bergquist. You couldn't have much more Scandinavian name than Lars Bergquist. And uh, he wrote an article in uh, a newspaper, the Sidsvenska Dagbladet, October 16, 1991. And I want to tell you what the English translation of the headline was. The way to the European community is via Rome. That was the headline. Now, he didn't mean the Republic of Italy, I hasten to assure you. He meant that little 40-hectare nation that takes up such a minor space in the city of Rome. Now, Lars Bergquist was no ignorant man. In the first time since the Reformation had blessed the Swedish people, they had degraded themselves to appoint an ambassador to the Vatican. And Lars Bergquist was the first Swedish ambassador to the Vatican. And he was writing his advice to the Swedish people. He said, 450 years ago, we left Europe when we accepted the Lutheran faith. Tragic. That was the most wonderful thing the Swedes probably ever did in history. <coughs> but he was himself a Lutheran, of course. But he said, if Sweden wants to come back to Europe by being part of the European Union, there's one matter it must understand that the European community, as it was then, is a Roman Catholic organization. And he said, if Sweden wants to succeed, we've got to stop thinking like Swedes and start thinking like Roman Catholics. He said, why? This was speaking in 1991. I don't think he would use Britain as an example today. But this was 1991, eight years ago. He said, why do you think Britain and Denmark are not succeeding in the European community? It's because they 
refuse to think like Roman Catholics. He said, Sweden must not make that mistake. What he said. He claimed to be a Lutheran. And that is what he gave. He said it was founded by, I've, the translation, I couldn't get it exactly. It, it was somewhere between dedicated and fanatical, somewhere in between that in English. So you get the idea. So we'll use, we'll be kind, we'll use the word dedicated. It was founded by dedicated Catholics. And he named Conrad Adenauer, the first chancellor of West Germany. Robert Schumann, who was, uh, of course, the head of France, and de Gasperi, who was the uh, prime minister at the time of Italy. He could have mentioned the uh, Belgian leader too. These men understood that Europe, through the European Union and through its membership of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, was going to be a great support for the Vatican. And that's what it is. This is why the Vatican is powerful, because it has the European Union and it has the mightiest military force ever known under its control. And this is why God, looking down to the time of Revelation 13, the last Revelation 13, told us what was going to happen in these last days, how these matters could be all uh, brought together. <clears throat> It just amazes me how the nations of Europe are meekly handing over their sovereignty. You people have probably just have studied the history of Europe. It's been a history of war after war to maintain sovereignty. And now... I find countries like this country meekly handing over their sovereign powers. It is disgraceful. It's not going to be for the strengthening of God's work to do that. You know, last year when I was in Europe, I picked up some newspapers. I picked up the International Herald Tribune. You may not know it, but of course... For us, when we go into Europe, we like to read uh, papers we can read in English. And the Herald Tribune is a very good newspaper, for it is a paper put out by a combination of the Washington Post and the New York Times, the two most, uh, I guess, influential newspapers in the United States. And I was reading July 7, 1998... And I was absolutely amazed. It said, the, and I'm quoting, the European Commission said in a statement it would take France, Italy, Luxembourg, Germany, Greece, and Portugal before the European Court of Justice. It's pretty powerful. 
to take countries like France and Germany uh, and uh, some of the smaller nations. Now, what was it for? Well, I'm not interested in the issues that it was over. It was for failing to integrate European Union laws on workers' rights and safety in the workplace. Now, I believe in workers' safety in the workplace. Don't misunderstand me. But that is the sovereign right of the nation and of its government to decide. But what are we doing? These nations, because they have not been complying with the European Commission, if it can take nations like Germany and France to court, this European Commission is a pretty powerful organisation, very powerful. They are losing their sovereignty. You see, if you've got a democracy, the best way to find out what the people want is when you go to the polls and they throw the government out because it hasn't done these things. You don't need a European Commission to enforce it. On the very same uh, edition I read, the European Commission warned Monday that governments must do more to reduce budget deficits. Now... In the past, each country had to face those problems. It's not good to have budget deficits. So I'm told, I don't know enough about it to be sure. But the facts of the matter are, governments in sovereign countries have to weigh political issues with fiscal issues. It's one thing to say, do this, and then you put a, you know, a million people out of employment, and governments have to to weigh these matters. You can reduce your deficit sometimes by sacking a whole lot of government servants. But they're not going to be too pleased when the next election comes around. They might look in another direction other than the government. But here was the Commission interfering in the fiscal policies. And then I read in the London Weekly Telegraph, June 5, 1998, this was appalling. Danish voters have approved the Amsterdam Treaty, which further increases the powers of the European Union. Now, this was over their foreign policy. In other words, the Danes were prepared to allow the European Commission to dictate much of their foreign policy. Sovereignty, sovereignty being lost. It stated that opponents contemned, condemned the treaty as a further step towards a European superstate. Here is a Lutheran country, Denmark, being coerced and accepting that coercion in order to have its foreign policy dictated from Brussels. From Brussels. And who do you think is instructing Brussels? The only problem about this holy European empire is it is not holy. It may be European and it may be becoming an empire. But my dear brothers and sisters, it is not holy. It is quite the reverse. Now I'm not here, of course, to make a political statement. But I am here to tell us, my dear brothers and sisters, 
of the things that are happening in the European Union today are fast fulfilling the prophecy of Revelation 13. Everything is being put in place. I think I might have mentioned, was it the last time I was here? I'm not sure whether I did. But I was really shocked when I read of a woman who claimed that she had been dismissed by, a, by the government unjustly and she sued the government of the United Kingdom. And that was, um, I suppose, something that's happened many times, that the government has been sued for unfair dismissal. She found a lawyer, a woman lawyer, and uh, to my horror, here was a British woman suing the British government, using a British barrister, and the matter was this, to be decided by the European Court of Justice. Sovereignty of Britain? You mean Britain has given away its sovereignty to the point where matters that are totally British are going to be decided by the European legal system? You know, in Australia, we used to think so highly of the British justice. Now, of course, it wasn't perfect. No, no justice system is. But that which developed in the late 19th century and into the 20th century, we were grateful that we got some of it in Australia. It wasn't perfectly just, but it was a long way more just than most of the nations of the world. But now I see that that justice, part of it, this sovereign country is passing over to a court of the European community. But it was even worse than that because the name of the lawyer who was standing for that woman was Cherry Booth. And I think you know who Cherry Booth is. Can you imagine that the wife of the British Prime Minister was defending a case against her husband's government before the European Court of Justice? What has happened to this country? What is happening? Sovereignty. Oh, I'm so pleased that Britain hasn't, shall I say, yet join the monetary union. They might wait until the euro is worth about 10 American cents. I don't know. It seems to be going in that direction. Did you notice the four of the 15 nations that didn't join? Not one of them was a Catholic country. Sweden and Denmark um, and Britain. The only predominantly Protestant country that joined was Finland. The Greeks, of course, are uh, orthodox, but uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Quite interesting. You know, there's nothing more controlling than money. Is that right? You just imagine the power of the European Central Bank 
Just imagine the power to have all these countries being part of it. And that comes in. And where, if the British join, one, one feels afraid. You know, Norway almost joined the European Union. It was a very close vote, wasn't it? But now it is the strongest economic nation in, in the, the Scandinavian nations. I was reading that when I was in Sweden uh, earlier this year. I was surprised. They were supposed to get weak because they didn't have all the economic advantages of being in the Union. And somehow they've found it's been an advantage. Now, there should be some lessons to learn from uh, Norway there. The reason I have spoken about these matters, my dear brothers and sisters, is not because this is a course in political science. be a pretty poor one if it was. But because it is time for us, my dear brothers and sisters, and those especially living in the European Union, to be alert to that which is transpiring. I know you love this country, but this country is being seeped away. The more sovereignty that is given away, the less British Britain will be. Now that's true of the other nations too. And Britain once stood as the bulwark of Protestantism. I wish I could say it still does. I would not be telling the truth. But its record was admirable in taking the truth of Protestantism around the world. But now it is seeping back back, back to the conditions that prevail when Britain, England and Scotland were under the yoke of Rome back there in the 16th century. It's going back to Rome. And all this is a fulfilment of God's unerring prophecy. And all the world wondered after the beast. That includes Australia, not just Europe, because Europe is the prototype for the world's claim, uh, the Pope's claim on the entire world. This is a time for us to be ready, to have that character which we studied about in the previous message. This is a time that we put our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Men, no matter how high politically or even religiously, are not going to be the solution to this world's problems. And we as Seventh-day Adventists need to be people of the light. People of the light. We need to read our news and to read it remembering that although each specific event may not be mentioned in Scripture, but the general trends we need to see, how they are leading. And as we do that, we need to say to our Lord, prepare us, give us thy character, give us thy courage, thy faith, thy purity, 
This is my prayer for God's people at Gaysley.